0: Hi, Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, I'm a programmer at TIFF now, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Chelsea McMullen, a documentary filmmaker whose work includes the features My Prairie Home and Michael Shannon, Michael Shannon, John, and episodes of the television series In the Making and This Is Pop. Their latest is Ever Deadly a collaboration with the Inuit throat singer Tanya Tagak that examines the evolution of Tanya's music as an expression of her identity. It premiered at TIFF last September and opens across Canada this Friday, January 20th. On Saturday the 21st, after the 8 p.m. screening at the Hot Dog Cinema in Toronto, Chelsea and Tanya will have a conversation with journalist and author Tanya Talaga, so don't miss out on that. Chelsea picked La Cienega, the 2001 debut of director Lucretia Martel and a cornerstone of the new Argentine cinema. Set over a summer at a well-to-do family's country home, La Cienega wanders through the lives of a dozen or so key characters—adults, teenagers, kids, friends, and lovers—as they try to distract themselves over the humid days and uncomfortable nights, annoying one another or falling into each other's beds as situations allow. And all the while, there's a gathering sense that something's about to shake up these dissolute lives—something unpleasant or maybe even dangerous. Whatever it is, they'll never see it coming. This is someone else's movie.
1: I love Lucretia Martel so much. She's my favorite filmmaker and I feel like she's like this rare filmmaker in that she like has not made a bad film in my opinion, you know, like I think all of her films are kind of masterpieces and she's only made like very few, but, Mm -hmm. um, La Cienega is like, I also feel like one of the strongest first features I've ever seen in my life. Um, and it's just such a powerhouse and just like such, um, like, fresh, innovative voice um, that you see right away and sort of a directorial debut. And I just kind of remember watching it in my early 20s and just being sort of like, I I think it really changed the way I saw cinema and changed who I was as a filmmaker. So kind of that, you know, that initial sense of discovery I had with Les Cienega. So I kind of thought that that would be um, a fun one to talk about.
0: Yeah, I'm so glad you picked it. Uh, it's the first Martel on the show, um, which I guess isn't surprising because she is sort of a niche director. Uh, what she yeah. does is very specific and not everybody. Mm-hmm. I mean, I still don't think I like the headless woman. I appreciate it.
1: <laughs> I but mean, I, not, none of them are comfortable watches yeah. either.
0: <laughs> oh, that's fair. Yeah. Um, so you were in your 20s when you saw La Siena Did you see it in its first run? Did you catch it theatrically?
1: Or- No, I think I was about 25 and uh, I was living in Italy and I was going to like an artist residency and there was um, another artist, a filmmaker there who was Argentinian and he introduced me to her work. He's like, oh, I think you'd love her stuff. Like you have to see it. And then I was just like, and um, yeah, I'm so thankful. And he's still like one of my best friends. So we like obsessively talk about her all the time. And he actually ended up taking a workshop with her. And I was like, tell me.
0: That <laughs> 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 so yeah, what what's her method like? I mean, what is what was that experience like
1: for him? Yeah, I mean, the thing that I remember, he told me that I really thought about is that he that she had um, everybody make like they didn't use any moving image, they just like worked on um, sound like for the whole workshop, oh, wow. which is so like her, but um, it was like, she asked them to like make a film, but only using voicemails and no, and no, like and no picture. So, <laughs> which I was just like, that's like, a, that's amazing.
0: Sorry. No, now I'm imagining it, having no idea what it was like, but I can see how she'd be drawn to like an expression of character through voice rather than, um, mannerism or posture or any of that stuff because so much of La Cienega is about the unspoken the interactions between people the things they do and don't do the things we see and don't see I remember being completely unmoored like I couldn't Mm -hmm.
1: it's a feeling
0: yeah at first I thought it was just me and this is awful but this would have been 2002 I guess and I'm like can I just not tell these actors apart is that the problem And then after 20 minutes, it all sort of makes sense. But the way she codes the characters, how somebody, like, you know, one character just basically wears the same swimsuit for the entire movie so we can keep track of her Mm -hmm. in shots. Um, It's just so clever in its lack of structure, or its apparent lack of structure. And then in the end, you realize you've been watching this thing narrow itself down to a fine point.
1: Exactly. It's really funny because I was watching it with my my partner Um, and he was like, he just couldn't, he didn't realize that like the um, like for a long time in the film that the, that the sort of like um, the, the women that worked for the family Mm -hmm. were not the family. And that's like, I, I felt like that was like so indicative of what you're talking about, which is like, okay, there's like a different dynamic here, but nothing's really clear. And like, and it becomes more and more clear as the film sort of unfolds, but it just takes a long time to sort of ground yourself into, in the like, yeah, relationships. Um, But I think I, that's also what I really like about it is just like, I I feel like it's a really, a really impressive sleight of hand that you, you think that nothing's happening until it does, (laughs) until everything happens, you know? Um, And that's kind of, yeah, the magic of her is sort of, you're sitting in this kind of atmosphere and it doesn't feel like the narrative is progressing, but it's actually been progressing the whole time.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I remember feeling the, just feeling the humidity somehow in the theater, just, it's one of the few movies where the density of the image actually feels like it's coming off the screen and, you can understand why everyone's moving so slowly. You can understand. I mean, even at the very beginning, which which opens with um, for for listeners who haven't seen the film, it opens with a uh, a small accident that has devastating consequences. Um, and I mean, it is the inciting incident, in as much as there is one at all, uh, of the of the okay. story. But it's just putting ice in a glass of red wine and then dropping the glass and falling on it. It's it's all so simple and any one of those things is something that's instantly relatable we've all been to parties we've all dropped glasses we've all been but then you factor in just how little everyone else is moving and you realize that at first the first time i saw it is just like everybody is so drunk that they can't help mecca and that is part of it but Mm -hmm. they can't move they can't move through the air it's everything is so heavy Mm -hmm. and 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 humid and gross and sweaty and and later on someone tells momi that she hasn't washed her hair she hasn't showered in three days or four days and you can just feel the grime but even before that that's that that line of dialogue which i think is an hour into the movie is the clarifier for everything else i've been watching it's like oh right of course like no one wants to do anything no one can you can't even think when you're that hot and so you've got these people who they have the wherewithal to isolate themselves from whatever else is going on Uh, and this is Right after Argentina came out of a long point of, of turmoil, right? Like we yes. don't exactly know when the film is taking place. They might be hiding out from something. They might be isolating themselves from from uh, uncertain situations,
1: mm-hmm.
0: or maybe they're just rich enough that they don't care and they can wander up and spend the summer in this place. But it just it feels so languid and and loose at the same time. Like this is what indulgence looks like.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I think that, like, um, yeah, honestly, that, like, first... I think it's probably, like, the first seven or eight minute, maybe minutes of the film, are, like, honestly, just, like, a masterpiece. I've watched it over and over and over again. There's hardly any dialogue, mm-hmm. and it's all told through sound. It's, like, the scraping chairs, the tinkling ice in the in the glass, the dogs barking the like the storm sort of coming, the boys in the forest hunting, and it's all sort of coming together in a sort of sculptural sound like experience. And it's telling you everything. It's kind of setting up the entire film uh, in that like first seven minutes. And, um, but yeah, and also just the like the heat and just like the bodies, like as they're like, I I remember, um, yeah, they don't really show the faces as much of like the other people that are there. Lots of torsos. Yeah, there's these torsos like dragging the chairs. And yeah, it's always been like probably one of my favorite openings to a film I've I've ever seen. Um, And it just so beautifully sets up everything you're going to see. And that atmosphere that you're talking about of just like the heat and their bodies are all sort of like leathery. and, And it's so, so stunning. I could watch it again and again.
0: It is so... Like, it's a statement of purpose, too. It's, it's a declaration mm-hmm. of intent. It's one of those
1: films Absolutely. where
0: this her entire career can be seen in this movie because it's the world that she wants to deal with over and over mm-hmm. and over again. And mm-hmm. she's played with time and she's she's made period pieces and she's just sort of bent her own reality. But it's always about the same thing. It's always about the this, I mean, it's entitlement and power and, and yeah. learned ignorance. Right? Oh, yes. I didn't know that was a problem. I have never seen this. You know, I, I couldn't, this is not something I've ever had to deal with before. It's like, yeah, of course it isn't, but you never tried either.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, and all of her, um, there's a, there's this thing that I keep coming back to so many movies and it's just this year, but so many movies have seemed to me to be about American films, particularly having this moment, but it's coming out in other, um, in other country cinema as well, where filmmakers are dealing with the, perspective of children who understand that they're hostages to their parents. Like that, mm-hmm. that it's not just about adolescent rebellion. It's about the understanding of powerlessness that children have. And I thought at first that it might be a pandemic thing, like a reaction to being told by the government that you can't go, go out and live your life. And mm-hmm. so now suddenly people turn inwards and they're making these quasi-autobiographical scripts about kids feeling powerless. And maybe it is. But martel has been doing it all along. Um, with, uh, with the added level of societal, you know, the Catholic organization in Argentina around, um, around body, not shaming exactly, but body consciousness and, and mm-hmm. refusing to um, let kids off the hook for kid behavior. <laughs> that, that that Catholicism is a particularly good hat. like the scene in the store where they get a, a friend to take a shirt off and try on a shirt and mm-hmm. there's this little moment of consciousness where the, the young women realize they have the power to do this to young men. Yeah, and they've never they've clearly never at least two of them have never had this moment before and they're uncomfortable by uh, by association, but they also get off on it. And that lens turning feels incredibly Catholic but also, it's every teenager ever who suddenly realized they have some kind of power over over other people because of their bodies or because of their, um, their status that they've never understood. It's just, it's so acute and so sharp. And again, not a single line of dialogue about it. No one ever discusses it again. Mm-hmm. It's just this moment that Martel saw and remembered or experienced and remembered and wanted to put in this film and puts it at exactly the right place
1: totally yeah that's such a loaded scene and sort of Mm -hmm. like you know race and class sort of play into it as well you can kind of feel everything sort of and yeah and sexuality and yeah i mean it's amazing too i think how she like it's just so present in like sexuality and um uh so present sort of has this constant tension across like all of her films and like the entire film like I'm always just like so uncomfortable and feel like at any moment just some sort of like uh I mean you know like there's like incest I think there's in sexuality um the power dynamics of of like you know um of I think women sort of, uh, sort of discovering you know their their bodies and their and their sexuality are sort of all really present, mm-hmm. um, but it it feels so heavy in her films. It's it's um, it's never liberating. It's always quite oppressive.
0: Yeah. Well, we we're so quickly given the world that these people walk in mm-hmm. an understanding of it and how. They're being berated or shoved aside. The adults have no time for the kids, um, and it's just like I—I th- I, I just rewatched it last night, and the thing I took away from it was the the stunning levels of neglect. Yeah. Um, the kids are, you know, splashing around in a in a river bank with machetes. Yeah, uh, or well, that ta- or scene cha- is
1: so. Oh, it's intense. horrifying. Yeah. yeah, you just are like, someone's gonna get an arm chopped off. Yeah, and we've already
0: seen, you know, like a kid without an eye, and yes, yeah. people with scars that are never explained.
1: Scars, yeah, all over their bodies, yeah.
0: Yeah, and I remember seeing it when I saw it theatrically. It was the entire audience cringing in one direction we were all pulling to the left in the whole like it was like a wave in this in the theater of people just going <laughs> and and nothing and not only does nothing happen but she cuts away yeah. um before yeah. <laughs> anything can happen Or the, i i guess no she cuts away from the scene with the rifles um but in the in the machete sequence it's interrupted by just a, a storm by the by the rain breaking and the water yeah. spraying everywhere
1: yeah
0: and that's the release but the the sense of constant danger that these kids are gonna get you know seven kinds of hepatitis and tetanus just from going out on the porch
1: yeah um in that like dank pool the swamp yeah pool. oh yeah don't jump in there you'll get a
0: disease but yeah. we've already seen her jump in there so now oh, yeah. she gets to think about that and just and the way that when you're a kid you're heedless until an adult tells you something is bad um
1: yeah and i think it's them. like also that the adults are just like catatonic but the kids are like full of life and they're running sort of like ragged all over the place and like the adults are not even sort of engaging with them
0: yeah they're just an annoyance yeah to, they they disrupt the siesta and they don't like that but that's about <laughs> it that's the only yeah. time they'll they'll get in the way and when or, you need them yeah. they're there to, they're there to serve you you know like drive Mecca to the hospital. And if you don't have a license, just tell them I told you it was okay. Which again is like two levels of entitled Mm -hmm. um, and two levels of terrible.
1: Yes, totally. Yeah, no, she, uh, it's just like, again, without using dialogue necessarily or sort of directly using Mm -hmm. dialogue, it's just, she's just able to say so much um, and just be so Sort of pointed in her criticism of you know I think our obviously Argentinian society and I think where you know the society in which she grew up, but I think obviously sort of it can extend, it can extend oh, <laughs> beyond <yeah>. that too.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, and I did notice last night there is no exposition like at all. We never yes. know where they've come from or who they are, what they do for a living. It's kind of blurry as to who's whose parents, even like it's just. Yeah. The kids are just around,
1: yeah. Or and the relationships, like it's like the it's like the other woman that comes. I can't remember T- Tito or Tali. Uh, um, Tali. Yeah. It's like I can't. Like it's like that's like her maybe cousin or like <laughs> I'm like yeah. And it doesn't matter
0: because yeah. you know when you've it's it's the thing that David Cronenberg's movies do that no one else has ever figured out, which is that when you've known someone long enough, you don't use their name,
1: <laughs> and so. <laughs>
0: The artifice of cinema, where you're just constantly saying, "Hey, Bob, remember when?" and he just—he's never bothered that. I think *The Fly* is my favorite example because it's 25 minutes before anyone gives out a name, Um, and they're just like, "It's there's only three people in the movie. You don't need to know their names. You can recognize them. It's a visual medium." Uh, But here, there's just this kind of general acceptance that everybody in the who's there on the property belongs there. Um, which is fine because nobody's a threat to themselves. They're all, they're all, the threats are all internal. They're all doing this to themselves without any help from out from their friends or family. But then there's these little moments that speak to differences. Um, like Isabella who does work for them. Like that's, that's clarified mm-hmm. early on because Isabella is the one who's probably stealing towels and sheets, maybe stealing, stealing towels, towels and yeah. sheets. <laughs> but Isabella's not identified in that scene. They're just talking about her. So you have to spend half the movie waiting for someone to say hey, Isa and <laughs> For us to connect to it yeah and then there's that other moment where someone confronts a gate by just bringing a rock up and smashing a padlock and saying it's the same <laughs> as it is everywhere what does that mean <laughs> like when have you otherwise had to do this it's it's fascinating because i love it it just comes out of nowhere but again it gives you the feeling of being a kid and blundering into these situations that you don't understand and just you know watching everything and taking it all in. I don't believe Lucretia Mertel has ever forgotten anything.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it all like interconnects. Like, I mean, I, I, when you said that, it made me laugh. I love that line. And, uh, you know, the other line I love is when she's like, Oh, um, like when she's talking about her son and she's like, I hope he doesn't lose his other eye. But at yes. that point we haven't seen him yet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's such a strange line with out of context but you like trust <laughs> um, and then obviously he comes, he, you know, it's all revealed later, but I just love that. I feel yeah. like it's such a, you know, a master hand to be able to, um, yeah, resist telling us too much, like letting us, letting us like sort of get there. Yeah. But I also think it's interesting that you brought up Cronenberg because I do really feel like what she does like most, like incredibly with sound is like use it almost as genre like as horror mm-hmm. genre for not a horror film. I mean, I think there is an argument or a paper could be written that it is horror, but- Oh, it's um, in there. Yeah, but like she uses sound to the same sort of effect. And I and I, that's what I sort of love so much about her films.
0: Yeah, the sense of constant gathering doom. And I think that's the reason I couldn't connect to The Headless Woman when I saw it. Um, and I had such a weird experience. I saw it at Cannes uh my only trip to Cannes was in 2008 and The headless woman was in the competition and i saw it at i'm gonna say it was the it was either the 8 30 or the 11 a.m screening it was the one of the morning screenings and i was in no space for it for something that quiet and contemplative and Mm -hmm. eerie um and it just felt i couldn't connect to it and i i've tried to watch it again and i still i think my fundamental problem with it is just the fact that we see what she hits early mm. on
1: and that's
0: presented as objective reality. And so the rest of the movie is, is this fussiness. So either it's a Jacob's Ladder situation where she's dead and you know, yeah. she, she died in the crash and we're mm-hmm. just watching that play out for an hour and a half, or there's something else going on, which I'm not as interested in. And it's because of the, the way she uses sound design and music to make it feel like a horror film where you yeah. know, it, it never pays off. Um, and I'd already, and at least, you know, La Cienega pays off. La Cienega does have a cathartic ending. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And so I guess I just, well, yeah. And, and Mm -hmm. so sad and tragic and I'm not going to discuss the specifics in case people listening really want to see it, but there is this, this casual happenstance, you know, like after all of these moments of, um, you know, you'll shoot your foot off and all this all, <laughs> the, all of our investment in these characters not hurting themselves something happens and it is simply this the like it's the thesis of the entire film it's what happens when the parents don't pay attention but then there's a shot that is so heartbreaking and so yeah. simple and it says everything yes but it sends you out with feeling and yeah it's just so piercing and and awful um that is something I guess I've been chasing in all of her subsequent films. Cause it feels like she's just, she understood the assignment as the kids say, like she just gave you this movie, which is severe and devastating and gentle at the same time. And it feels for the kids, even though the adults in the movie don't like her heart's bleeding for them. And it it's just so powerful and passioned, impassioned. um, That's it's never really left me.
1: Yeah it's a really brilliant ending and that was sort of like the pilgrimage and just sort of the revelation that nothing is there um is a sort of yeah devastating catharsis
0: Hey, it's Norm, interrupting my own show to bring you up to speed on Shiny Things, my twice-weekly newsletter about physical media, culture, and the odd streaming thing. Last week, I wrote about Warner's 4K release of Black Adam and what it says about the ongoing evolution or devolution of the DC Comics movie project, and the way some Hollywood studios have finally, finally embraced Blu-ray in their awards season campaigns. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at shiny-things.ghost.io, or find a link at the Semcast Twitter account. Look, if I don't write about movies, my head falls off. Come check it out.
1: I also feel like something that is interesting, I find like tonally her film so interesting because it's like, there's some part of it that really feels like almost like a, like realism as we sort of know it, Mm -hmm. but then it's also like extremely surreal. And I feel like La Cienega is maybe her most surreal, except for maybe Zama.
0: I mean, Zama is almost an absurdist kind of version of what she does.
1: Yeah just it's such an unusual tone of like using sort of these two sort of like languages and sort of putting them together in a way that sort of is is a bit um yeah it's it's a bit hard to even define in a way mm-hmm. and I, I, I really feel like that's um something I've always been attracted to in her work
0: I do find it so striking too that I mean, Argentina and Mexico are, are very different countries in so many ways, but that Koran made Itumama Tambien the same year as this, that mm, they're sort of, that's the, the higher polished version, like the <laughs> entertainment version of the story. Yeah,
1: yeah, the Hollywood version. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, and, and so, and in that scene in the, um, in the clothing store is basically all of Roma.
1: In a yeah, nutshell. It's totally. just, they're
0: like, they've been in communication with each other in completely different ways. He's, mm-hmm. he's chosen this much more narrative driven plot laden. Oh, you could argue Roma doesn't have a plot, but it does. Uh, like in the <laughs> same way that La mm-hmm. does not doesn't. Mm-hmm. And I would just, it struck me. Cause I saw them, I think six months apart. I, I saw Mama Tambien at TIFF. And then I saw La Cienega in the spring the following year, I think. And, um, they do feel like they're just about this awakening of social consciousness um, from privileged people, or from people from privileged backgrounds who are now reckoning with that. And you know, in both cases, they're twenty years ahead of where movies are right now.
1: Totally, yeah. When I was watching it again, because I, I rewatched it before we we talked, I um, I just real, I just really felt like it. And I think you've already kind of touched on it a bit, but like, it really just feels of now, like it doesn't feel out, out of date. It feels very yeah politically <laughs> charged even, even now, even maybe more so, which is, yeah, quite something.
0: Yeah. It's, it's rare where the movie of the moment is 22 years old.
1: Like imagine it, this is like a, a film that came out after the pandemic. Like, (laughs) it's like, it would even be more charged. (laughs) They're like, you know, they've escaped to the countryside or whatever, you know?
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I've seen five or six movies just like that um, (laughs) in the last seven uh, months, but um, none of them has had anything like the the texture or the, or even the intimacy, I think, because With the pandemic movies, it's all been a reaction. Like, it's how can we shoot this? What can we shoot? How how small can we make it? Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes they work, but this one is removed from everything anyway, mm-hmm. right? Like, it, it, even if she shot it in the middle of an economic boom time, it would look and sound like this because it's who she is and and yeah. the world that she wants to build.
1: Yeah. No, that's a really good point. And I think, like, I don't want to get too much into it because I'm no expert on like the politics of Argentina. But my understanding is that it sort of came out out like it came out after, like, at a very politically charged time, or right after. Um, well, between two, apparently, it yes. was in that little yeah. th-
0: that little respite between two extremely um, well, one incredibly corrupt administration, and then another one that was eventually sort of going to get there. Yeah. But it was it was produced at a point of hope and it's Mm -hmm. a hopeless film which is just so fascinating
1: (laughs) it's a really interesting thing to think about yeah
0: maybe that was the only window where she could get it made
1: yeah that's a great point that's a great point such a dark Mm. film yeah (laughs) yeah and i kind of my understanding is a lot of it is inspired by sort of her own like it's i wouldn't i don't know if it's so far as like semi-autobiographical but it's definitely sort of inspired by Um, where she grew up and the town in which she grew up and and everything like that. So it's sort of inspired by an earlier time as well.
0: Yeah, there's a a quote of hers where she says it was based on memories of her own family, which is a nice way of avoiding any specifics. (laughs)
1: Yikes.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, and it also gives you the out, right? Because if you present an autobiographical story as a memory, then you can take it in any direction you want, really. Mm -hmm. And you're not bound to you know, honoring the truth, which is always, you know, as far as narrative goes, it's a death sentence if you're trying to be accurate, because you'll just end up killing whatever makes your story interesting, because your own memories and your, your own subjective experience is what makes it art.
1: Yeah. And I do. I get really, to say stuff like that. <laughs> I know. And I do feel like there is a real quality of it feeling like memories as well in the sort of like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, in the sort of uh, uh the haze of it, maybe, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that's the right word,
0: <laughs> oh, I was gonna ask actually speaking of haze of memory, have you seen after sun,
1: not yet, it is like the number one film on my list to see and i had like planned to see it over the holidays and just couldn't pull pull my shit together but um yeah i want to see it so badly i feel like it's like you see it, and you're like i know this is a film i will love
0: (laughs) yeah i just it hit me like a like a mallet just absolutely laid me out and there's a lot of la cienega in it i think Mm -hmm. in the Mm -hmm. way that but it's focused on only two characters but in the way that they're their interplay works and in the way that they have separate adventures, adults and children, uh, which will eventually come back to, to sort of dovetail and intertwine. It's, I wish I'd gotten to talk to Charlotte Wells cause I would have definitely asked her about um, Martel and her Interesting. cinema. And if it's an influence. Yeah. I oh, think you'll yeah. really like it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I and I do feel like part of it is that I'm like emotionally preparing myself <laughs> to see it.
0: Yes, it's so good, but it is absolutely devastating. It'll be on VOD in a couple of weeks, I think. Actually, yeah. Well, and to and speaking of influences, I mean, it, this is always a weird way to get out of the podcast um, mm-hmm. when someone is not making the sort of films that we're talking about. But mm-hmm. is there a connection? Like, have you? relied on anything of Martel's, or specifically la or in, or her other work in in your own movies i was trying to think about it and you know, like, i can't really see it in ever deadly but there is a yeah. texture thing going on
1: yeah i don't think there's like ob- obvious connections mm-hmm. um but i do feel like sound is 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 really really important um an atmosphere um, like setting in in an atmosphere that sort of, I feel like kind of tells um, as much about sort of a character or person as, as sort of just like, you know, dialogue, or it's about sort of being in time and space. Um, Yeah. And like uh, I I think that I'd say definitely the biggest influence is, is, is sound. And like, I, I had read one time that she um, she maps out kind of a soundscape script as well Um, as yeah. Like with her scripts, there's also a sound script. And so I do that with my films too. Um, I sort of, yeah. Map out a sort of soundscape that I want to achieve in the film. And obviously Tanya's art and work is like the perfect, uh, um. Uh, yeah, sort of departure point for like a building a soundscape. Um, no, I was
0: going to say, yeah, it, what she does is so distinctive and instantly recognizable. I, I heard a track of hers in a movie somewhere this year, and it's just like, oh, cool. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah.
0: Someone else gets it, <laughs> but to yeah. devote an entire film to it and to to sort of match—I mean, what what you both do in the movie to to match her work, her sound with her life. And Mm -hmm. like, that's just not something I'd experienced in her work before, where you're sort of forced to confront where it comes from. Or not even confront, confront's the wrong word because it's not, that's not the kind of movie you've made, but but you know what I mean, right? Like it is simply laid bare in a way that it hasn't been for me previously.
1: Yeah, for me, the film was about like showing the work itself, like in its kind of entirety and it's sort of full form as a sort of a document of her Um, like what I was trying to get at was like, um, like, yeah, if, if you weren't to see her live, what's the closest you could have to like an experience of, of a live performance. Um, and, and then sort of around it, sort of all of the influences that lead to the work itself and all of the sort of, um, yeah. Who she is um, uh, distilled into 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 what we sort of understand as like her her work. Um, so I think sound is like kind of so uh, central to that, and um, and you know Tanya's been really um, like op- like straightforward about that in terms of she was just like yeah like if you you have to come home with me that is where it's from that is the impetus of everything like um and so yeah it was really about like just being with her and just understanding how she hears the world and then and then sort of trying to sort of capture that in this sort of very layered um uh way which we like i had like a a, i had this like amazing sound recordist who like he's a cattle farmer <laughs> Okay. and we went to film school together, but he sort of left film and be, it's his family, a family business. So he took over the cattle farm, um, but he's like an artist. He's a sound artist and I can barely ever get him out on something, but he's <laughs> the best sound person I've ever worked with. He's like, and um, yeah, he, uh I managed to convince him just because he's such a big fan of Tanya's to come out and do sound on this one because I was like this is going to be special if you'd help me on one film in my life like (laughs) it has to be this so he like came out for it but he would go out on his own for hours and hours and just record different sounds in the landscape and like even um there's that part where uh there's like a a siren and it sort of sounds like it's sort of Connected to the um MMIW. Um and then it sort of sounds like it's coming out of her mouth. Mm-hmm. He it's a siren that happens like a it's like a curfew siren. It uh, happens in Cambridge Bay okay. and it goes off every night at 10 PM. Um and then it's like It sort of goes off, but it sort of reverberates through like the entire town and then all the dogs start barking and it's just this really ominous sort of feeling sound. And like, you know, because like what I I found so interesting being up in Cambridge Bay is that like, you know, there's no trees, there's just like nowhere to insulate sound. So sound just reverberates and reverberates and reverberates. And so that's like what happens with the siren. And Alex, who's a who's a sound recordist, he went out every night because he never felt like he quite captured the quality of it. So we like at, like just before the alarm gun went out every night. He probably did it like every night we were there for one of our trips, which was like maybe seven days, and he would record that sound. And then he finally got it, and I'm like so proud that I feel like it's such an important part of the film. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's kind of like an example of it.
0: Yeah. And I'm thinking, of course, about the end credits of La Cienega, where all you have are the, the echoes of thunderclouds and gunshots. And the gunshots seem to be ramping up and getting faster, which I oh, I think I didn't catch until this last viewing. It's just like, oh, there's more of them now. Is that, like, the, what does that mean? Is this a revolution or is the revolution coming? Or
1: mm-hmm.
0: is it her hope for one? It's just yeah. like she never gives you an answer to anything, which is. I mean, the reason we remember it, obviously. Right? If she's, yeah. and, and now I feel like I want to revisit the headless woman again because if there is an answer, then what's the point? So maybe it's maybe it's on me.
1: <laughs> you're making me want to watch it again. I mean, I I really liked it when I watched it, but um, but yeah, I, I but I like understand what you're saying. Like, all I think all your points are really salient, and it's like, oh, I should rewatch it again with that sort of thinking about that.
0: You no, know, it's on Criterion.
1: Yeah, well, I think I might, uh, yeah, this might start uh, another Lucretia Martel, like, um, binge. Yeah, yeah, binge. Exactly.
0: Binging on Lucretia Martel is so, so counterintuitive.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's not the most, uh, yeah, Netflix and chill (laughs) vibes, but um, it works, but I I really appreciate the Like, yeah, I was excited to to do this because I was excited about the idea of sort of revisiting Re- revisiting her work. But yeah, I think like you're right like sound is absolutely sound. it's just like she really just taught me the power of sound, sound in cinema and you know, I think in documentary it's often a really overlooked element of of storytelling and it can be so yeah, it can it can say so much. Um and I you know, I lo- I just love landscape and and uh sort of I think landscape plays a big role in all of my films and how like the subject and the and the and the landscape are sort of connected and um and then obviously sound is a big part of how you sort of represent that
0: i mean i'm thinking about my prairie home and, and the way the expanse of it and the the tiny focus on character and like the the, the way that you it's not even juxtaposition it's it's uh, it's a synergy that you created there and and i guess now that i think about it you kind of do the same thing in, in ever deadly not
1: yeah kind of. <laughs> yeah, definitely and it's interesting that you say that because I I watched La Cienega right before I made my prairie home. So it was definitely even more present for me in making that. And similarly, and it was actually Ray who was mostly cuz we like didn't have any money, but like uh, Ray who was recording all the sound uh as we went um of the prairies. Hmm. Um yeah, so definitely, like the, I, I really see those like, um, *My Prairie Home* and, and like there's a connection too because Ray and Tanya and I are all really good friends, um. So I really feel that, that those films are sort of like a,
0: a pair. I can't believe it didn't occur to me before. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, and yeah, and Tanya had seen *My Prairie Home* and really like, really liked it, and and this, uh, her and Ray had toured a lot when they were young, so. Yeah, it's kind of just like an interesting synergy of the of the three of us. We're r- very good friends and love each other very much.
0: <laughs> have you shown them Lusiana yet? The way that someone did for you.
1: Uh, you know what I, I? I don't think I have, and I should. <laughs> I think yeah. they. I think they both really like it. Yeah,
0: and set up a watch party. can't be that hard these days.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think they'd both be like. They both are just sound is so forward in their in their brains that they would both pick up on it so much. Actually, I'd be really curious to, to hear their thoughts.
0: My thanks to Chelsea McMullen, whose new documentary Ever Deadly, co-directed by Tanya Tagak, opens in theaters across Canada this Friday, January 20th. Chelsea and Tanya will both be at the Hot Doc Cinema Saturday the 21st for a post-screening Q&A with author Tanya Talaga after the 8pm show. And you can get tickets for that at hotdocs.ca Thanks also to Jennifer Mayer, she knows what she did. You can find Chelsea on Twitter at Chelsea McMullen, all one word, and you can find La Cienega on Blu-ray and DVD in the Criterion Collection. It's also streaming on the Criterion channel in the U.S. and Canada, and available to rent and buy on various VOD platforms. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and you can find this podcast there at Semcast, S-E-Mcast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. The first year of the show is still available for just 20 bucks at payhip.com semcast. That's the first 52 episodes of Someone Else's Movie, 44 of which aren't currently available anywhere else. And check out my newsletter, Shiny Things, at shiny-things.ghost.io. I think you'll enjoy it. Our theme song is by the last year. If you like it or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been listening. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that. Stay safe. Watch movies wear a mask if you go out, get your booster when you can. I'll see you next week.